Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. We're going to do things a little bit different today, so I'm not going to have you stand to read the scripture, but we're talking about Advent. Hope is on the way, and so what I want to do is pray, then we'll go through a couple preliminary things and dive into the text. So let me pray to start. Father, we thank you so much that uh, hope is on the way. In this season, we look forward to the celebration of the greatest gift that any of us have ever received and that which we desperately need, even Christ the Lord. So Lord God, I pray that today uh, that you will meet each and every person in this room right where they're at. Some people may be on the top of the world and some people may feel like the world is on top of them. But God, we know that you are the God of all, all hope. So bring hope to your people today and glorify the name of Jesus through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting this series, an Advent series, Hope is on the Way, and that's what I'll be talking about today. But most of you know that hope can be an extremely fragile thing, right? Sometimes you have great hope and then Hopes have been dashed by people, by circumstances, by all kinds of things. Just by living in this sin-soaked world, our hopes often get dashed and we, are, we become broken uh, in relationships perhaps, in finances, in health. In so many areas, we can come to that place where hope seems so distant even if we try to look back to hope. When we hoped one time, it seems like that was another life or an alternate universe because hope is so far gone from us at that time. Listen, hope is a commodity that each and every one of us needs at times in such a way that, that if we don't have that hope, we're, we're ready to check out on life. Some people know exactly what I'm talking about, whether it's being suicidal or whether it's just at a place where you're like, I, I don't want to kill myself, but I don't want to live anymore. I know I've been there in my life, and I know most of you have been there at one point or another. Someone might even be there right now. I want to talk to you about a hopeless minute in my life. It was a short time, but it was a hopeless time. I remember the first sermon I ever did in Philadelphia. It was the worst sermon as well in the history of Philadelphia. <laughs> I am absolutely convinced. My wife knows she was there, and yet she survived. God is a God of hope. <laughs> it was so bad. We, we came to Philadelphia, came to seminary. It was my first year of seminary, and uh, in, in that first year, we started working immediately with a brand new church plant in North Philly. The, the congregation was about 80% Philly and Chicago inner city teenagers. That was our congregation at this little church plant. 
I'm in seminary learning all these heavy-duty things about God and Hebrew and stuff, right? So, so I, I'm doing my first sermon in Philadelphia. Now, the background of this is that my mentor, before I came to Philadelphia, was a pastor by the name of Charles R. Brown, Jr. He was an older black man, Pastor Charlie Brown. And he, he taught me, and he walked with me, and, and he, he taught me uh, God's ways. And you know, when you're mentoring someone, you don't just learn God's ways, you learn their ways. And how they do things, you tend to do things the same way. So Pastor Brown was a man of faith. He loved God. He taught me to love the Word. But when Pastor Brown got up to speak, Pastor Brown, it would be 75 minutes to 90 minutes, an hour and a half, whenever Pastor Brown spoke. Like, if he said, hello, how are you? 90 minutes later, you get to say, I'm fine, and you, right? That, Pastor Brown talked long. Now, I'm in a brand new church plant with inner city teenagers. It's a 25-minute preaching zone. Like, there's signs everywhere. You, you're not going to go over 25 minutes. So I, I'm, I'm at 25 minutes. I know it's a 25-minute preaching zone, and I'm ready to, to land the plane, but I don't know how. I don't know how to land this sermon. So at 35 minutes, I see that there are bodies that are still in seats, but their spirits have left the building already. <laughs> and I'm trying to land this plane, but I don't know how. It's 45 minutes in. And people are starting to get up and leave. And I'm still preaching my heart out. I'm trying to land the plane, but I was mentored by Pastor Brown, and I don't know how to end the thing. It was declared at that point a supernatural disaster area. Not just a natural disaster, but supernatural disaster. It was terrible. At about an hour. I still don't know how to land the plane. So I crash it into a building, and the sermon's over, and I feel like my life is over too. Like, I'm wondering, God, what have I done to my wife? What have I done to my family? I left my job. We left our house. We moved into Philadelphia, and obviously I'm not called to ministry. I recognize in that moment that I had a personal and intimate relationship with the worst preacher in the world, and that was me. I was at a low point. I was considering, was I ever called in the first place? What's wrong with me? I'm tripping. But I remembered in that time God speaking to me. And, and, and he let me know, you didn't call yourself. I called you. But I also remember hearing some words uh, from way back when, from several years earlier, from Pastor Brown. He had just such a wonderful way of lifting me up when I was low. And at one point, I remember I was so disappointed by a situation in my life, and I came to Pastor Brown just broken and hurting, and in his love, he put his arm around me, and he said, Larry, you know what's wrong with you? I'm like, oh gosh, this doesn't sound very hopeful. 
He said, what's wrong with you is you want what you want. You don't care what God wants. Now, this is crazy because you think that word of of rebuke would just bring me to nothing. But it was the word from God that I needed to hear at that time. And it was the word I needed after that terrible sermon in 1990. And when I heard that word again in my ears, I remembered that this thing isn't about me. This thing is about God. And my trust, as much as it was in my ability, needed to be scrapped. And my trust needed to be placed in the God who is able. I got hope in the middle of that place. And so today as we look at at Isaiah chapter 11, the question that we want to answer, hope is on the way, but the question is, where does true hope come from? Where does it come from? So let me read uh, Isaiah chapter 11. 11, I'll read the first nine verses. That's what we'll look at today. Isaiah says these words, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its, his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with the scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Verse five, righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatted calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like cattle. Verse 8. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. And a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. What an incredible passage. What a glimpse at the greatness of our God. We're going to look at that question today. Where does true hope come from? We need to look at this passage, though, in the context that it's written, which is the context of this section of the book of Isaiah that runs from chapter 7 to chapter 12. And in this context, Isaiah is writing as the Assyrian army is flexing its muscles and is going to begin to swoop into uh, Judah, which is the northern, or Israel, the northern neighbor of Judah, where Isaiah is prophesying to, as well as to Aram, uh, one of the other northern neighbors. And they're beginning to swoop down. Assyria had been silent for quite some time. And under King Uzziah, you remember that uh, 
that Isaiah received his call in the year that King Uzziah died. Remember that from chapter 6. And he says, I saw the train of his robe filled the temple. And he gets his call into ministry at that time. Under Uzziah, there was incredible prosperity among God's people in Judah. Prosperity that they hadn't had since well over 200 years earlier under King Solomon. It was time of great prosperity, but in the year that King Uzziah died, there was a new leader in Assyria. His name was Tiglath-Pileser III. I mean, Tiglath-Pileser III, that's a tough name to start with. You couldn't just call him, yo, what's up, Tiggy? That wouldn't work. He was nasty. He was cruel. He was a wicked king bent on conquest. As a matter of fact, he began the conquest of Israel, the northern neighbor, and then under his successor, Israel was totally destroyed. Samaria was under siege. Thousands of people died, and many of the remaining people were shipped off to a foreign land. This is the kind of leader that they were facing at this time. And so as we look at this scripture, I just want to turn you back to one verse in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 2. It tells us what's going on as we come even to verse 11. This is where the people are at. It says, when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, that is in Israel, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz, the king who is the king of Judah, and the hearts of the people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. So what is going on at this time is that they are under siege from a powerful enemy that they know has the power to ultimately destroy them and to take their people away. It seems like all hope will be gone. So in that context, we ask the question again, where does true hope come from? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Where does true hope come from? First, hope comes from a desolate place. Hope comes from a desolate place. It's interesting. He talks about the stump of Jesse. Y'all know what a stump is, right? You have a flourishing, beautiful tree. The tree has green leaves. It produces fruit, flowers, whatever else may be on that grand tree. But the stump is what's left when it's cut down. The stump is that ugly thing that's still in the ground that basically you, you usually want to get rid of the stump because there's no life in the stump. There's no purpose in the stump. The stump can't produce fruit. The stump can't produce leaves. The stump doesn't look beautiful. Birds can't nest in the stump. It's just a stump. And God refers to the people of Judah as a stump at this time. Ugly, lifeless, without the ability to nurture or give fruit in any way. Even after this time of great prosperity, because in the time of prosperity, they continued to look to other gods. They continued in their sin and in their rebellion. And so as disaster's about to come on them, he says, you're simply a stump of Jesse. 
Now, it's interesting because this is pointing us backwards, the stump of Jesse. But in the Bible, almost always when it wants to point back and give God's people hope because of the great kings of the past, it doesn't ever go back to Jesse, but it goes back to great King David, right? So when Jesus is about to enter uh, into Jerusalem on his Passion Week, the people take palms uh, leaves and put them down and throw their coats on the ground and they, they praise God saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They don't talk about Jesse, but right here he's called the stump of Jesse. Why? Let me, let me just give you one possible reason why. Because things were so bad, they were so far off from God, that it wasn't enough just to look back to a great king. In fact, where that king came from, we needed a brand new order, a brand new king, a brand new Messiah who could bring real hope to the people. And that had to come not from David. His lineage didn't make it, but it had to go all the way back to Jesse again. And so he's referred to as the stump of Jesse. But the beautiful thing in this verse is that it says, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So from this lifeless, ugly stump, God says, in the middle of your most desolate place, life is coming. Fruit is coming. God is coming to you in that time and in that hour. Have you ever been to a place where hope seems so far away? You can't even imagine hoping again you're you're lost you're broken for whatever reason you're there and for many of us the great temptation in that time of desolation is to put our trust in saviors that can't save is to put our trust in sins that promise relief We put our trust in obsessions that obscure reality. I I, I don't have to feel this anymore. I don't have to be in this anymore. I have an escape clause. But it doesn't work. Let me give you an illustration. Now, don't raise your hands on this one, please, because you'll be eventually embarrassed. But someone probably came here today in their car with squeaky brakes. You you who have driven around in a car for a while know about squeaky brakes, right? It's the sign that your brakes are going bad. But I know years ago, I learned a foolproof, almost miraculous, free cure for squeaky brakes. I didn't have to take it to a mechanic. I didn't have to buy anything from Pep Boys. It was a miracle cure for squeaky brakes. Some of you were like, I need to know that cure now. I'll tell you what the miracle cure is for squeaky brakes. If you use this, you won't hear the squeaky brakes ever again. Here's the cure. Turn on the radio and turn it up loud. You can drive around, you can go wherever you want. You won't hear another squeaky brake. But you might know there's a problem with that cure. 
because you'll probably never hear them squeak again, but what you will eventually hear is the grinding of metal against metal, and you put your foot on the brakes, and the car keeps going because you didn't deal with the issue. That's a problem with squeaky brakes, but it's a bigger problem even in our lives. When we handle the desolate place that way, we turn up the noise. We live in little sins that make us feel better for a while. But we've not done anything about the issue at hand. You see, in the desolate place, we need to do something about it. Hope comes to you in the desolate place. But not only that, hope also comes in another way. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I love this verse. Hope not only comes from a desolate place, but hope comes from a flawless Messiah. Hope comes from a flawless Messiah. This beautiful verse reintroduces us in the book of Isaiah to this flawless Messiah. We'd heard of him already in chapter 7 and verse 14 that said a virgin will be with child and his name will be called Emmanuel. As this great enemy of God's people is swooping down and they are afraid and fearing as Verse, as verse 2 of chapter 7 says, like leaves that are in the wind, they are shaking and fearing. God says, I've got a solution. A virgin will be with child. The solution to a cruel dictator, military juggernaut is a baby that's going to be born. He tells us of that once again in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And it says his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The government will be on his shoulders. You don't have to shoulder that, that thing anymore. Let the government be on his shoulders Hope comes from a flawless Messiah. In this verse that we just looked at, it starts out by saying the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That resting is an interesting word. Because many times in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God coming on, for example, a Samson, and he does some great feat of strength. We see the Spirit of God coming on King Saul, and he may prophesy, or someone else. But the Spirit of the, of the Lord doesn't just uh, come to him for a minute, but it rests on him. With this flawless Messiah, the Spirit of God indwells him. It animates him. It gives him his directions every second of every minute of every hour of every day. The flawless Messiah is directed totally by the Spirit of God. We have hope because we have a flawless Messiah. I love this verse. It, it goes from 
the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then it gives us three couplets of his characteristics. A spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Six other characteristics, which over the top of them is the Spirit of the Lord resting on him. Seven things in all that point to the one true flawless Messiah. Seven in the Bible, a number of completion and perfection. And we see here that this is indeed the flawless Messiah that we serve. Verse 2 repeats the phrase, the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. It's interesting because he had just said that he had the the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord in verse 2. When you're reading the Bible and God says the same thing twice in a row, you better pay attention. Why is that there? Why is it so emphasized that this coming Messiah, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this branch that will bear fruit, why does it emphasize that he delights in the fear of the Lord? I think it's because as you look back over the history of God's people and over the kings that preceded him, they weren't characterized by the fear of the Lord. Many times they were characterized by the fear of man. Many times they were characterized by the fear of outside armies and situations. Many times they were characterized by their own lusts and desires that they wanted for themselves. And they were going to make sure that they got what they wanted. But the Messiah that is prophesied of here delights in the fear of the Lord. He is wholly different than anything that's ever been known, anyone that's ever been known. And then in verse 3, he begins to talk about the judgment of this flawless one. He says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. The flawless Messiah brings a brand new standard of justice and righteousness to the people of God. And they need it. They need it desperately. If you look back in chapter 10, the Bible is is talking about judgment upon Israel, God's people. And in chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, of God's people, woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a, a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice. Does that sound like something not only from 3,000 years ago almost, but also today? He says, so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. What will you do, he says to those unrighteous judges, those unrighteous ones who make laws of oppression? He says, what will you do on the day of punishment when devastation comes from far away? Who will you run to for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There's a wrong standard of justice And Messiah comes to make righteousness and justice the foundation of his throne. One commentator puts it this way. When we think of justice, he says the word justice often has an ominous ring to us. 
But when it's used of the poor in the scriptures, it's almost always a synonym for salvation. Where there is corruption in law courts, it's the poor who long for a righteous judge. Psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 72. He will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. In Psalm 82, he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. The flawless Messiah comes, and we have hope in him because he brings true justice. The word he uses in, in verse 4 of Hebrews 11 is a Hebrew word, mishor. It's also used to describe plateaus in land, places where there aren't any hills, there are no low valleys, it's flat. He says, I'll bring perfect justice, where the high and lofty will be brought down, where the low, the oppressed, the hurting, the destitute, they'll be brought up. God's justice is perfect. We hope in this flawless Messiah, but not only that, look in verse 5. It talks more about this Messiah. It says, righteousness will be his belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be uh, a belt around his waist. Those words there for uh, hips and waist mean, uh, they, they speak of an inner garment, basically the undergarment that's right next to your body. It is the thing that is closest to your body. So what is the scripture saying here in verse 5? What it's saying is when you strip everything else away from this Messiah, this God, this Holy One, this shoot of Jesse who's coming. When you strip everything else away, what you're left with is righteousness and faithfulness. That is what defines him above all else. That is good news to those who are in need. One commentator says it this way, he says, righteousness in Isaiah, because Isaiah talks a lot about that theme, he says it's more than simple justice. It is to act in the right way. What is the right way for the God of all compassion to act? It is to have mercy. It is to be loyal to his subjects even when they have not been loyal to him. It is to keep his promises even when there's no more legal reason to do so. So God can't leave his people in captivity. Why not? Did they deserve to be delivered? No. Did they change their lives and get so right that he had to deliver them? Of course not. He delivers them and he accounts them as righteous because he gives them his own righteousness through the suffering servant, the flawless Messiah that Isaiah is about to talk about in chapter 53. The one who bears our griefs, who our diseases and sicknesses and sins are laid on him. This is the Messiah that we hope in. We hope, brothers and sisters, because the flawless Messiah 
who has seen every one of our flaws, even those we don't see, is pleased to forgive, to redeem, and to restore us so that he can give us what we never deserve of ourselves. The flawless one sees your flaws, and he says, I love him. I love her. That's my child. Third place that hope comes from is hope comes from a redeemed creation. Look at verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. Hope comes from a redeemed creation. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time of a whole lot of mess in this world. You know, even in the physical world, we see uh, these fires out of control in California. You see earthquakes around the world and people die. We see hurricanes and floods and all these things in the physical world. And then in the world of human relationships and economies, we see every evil thing, right? We, we see oppression continuing to take place. We saw pictures and videos of slavery, not from 1700, but from 2017, slave auctions going on in the world. The Me Too movement is there for a reason because of oppression and sexual violence that is taking place in workplaces all around the world. This is the world that we live in. But brothers and sisters, there is a hope that we get from this scripture because God wants you to know it ain't always going to be this way. One day. It will be turned over and turned around and righteousness and justice will reign and will rule. It's not going to be this way forever. So in the scripture you see these animals that normally would be enemies, a prey and a predator. And they're just like chilling together, right? They're just like hanging out. So, so you, you've got a leopard and a goat and they're taking selfies as they're, they're just chilling. And they're putting it on Hallelujah Book because Facebook doesn't exist in the redeemed creation. So it's on Hallelujah Book. <laughs> we hope in this renewed creation where God's shalom overcomes every enemy, every beef, Every struggle. There's no reality TV in the redeemed creation because there ain't no drama going on. But it gets, it gets even gooder. That's right, I said gooder. Look at verse 8. An infant, my wife's a teacher, she's going to hurt me after service. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. A toddler will put his hand in a snake's den. Listen, last time I remember snakes in the Bible, it didn't go so well for men and women, right? In the garden, there was a snake, and the enemy, Satan, inhabited that snake and spoke to that snake. By the way, if anyone has a talking snake, be very aware of that. Don't talk back to the talking snake. 
But this is the last time where we, where we see humans interacting with, with snakes in this way. But here in the redeemed creation, there's cobras and there's venomous snakes. And there is not just people, there's, there's infants. There's, there's little ones. And they're right there and they're chilling with snakes. How in the world can that be? It can be because Satan is no longer in play. He's banned. He's out. He's finished. He's not there anymore. So in this redeemed creation, there's no more enemy of our souls. He's gone. He's gone. We have a lot of millennials here at Epiphany Fellowship, but there are a few who are tipping the scales over 40. Hallelujah. I'm one of them. And let me just say to the young folk that us not quite as young folk are happy about the redeemed creation. We're happy because the bones that ache and hurt ain't going to hurt no more. The muscles that you go to work out and the next day and the day after that, you're still feeling those muscles. The brain that used to be able to recall things now forgets more than it ever remembered. And we're happy that new creation is coming. But for all of us in this new creation, we can be happy because there's no more broken relationships. There's no more misunderstandings. There's no more lies and deception. There's no more Me Too hashtags. There's no more student loans. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Satan is banished from this place, and right behind him is Sally Mae going off and away forever. We have reason to hope, but let me just say this. In our hope for this redeemed future, redeemed creation, we have a hope in redeemed creation but brothers and sisters, we have to have a commitment to be a part of renewing every area of creation that we can now. So we don't just talk about our future hope for perfect relationships and act like jerks toward one another right now. We, we don't glory in the amazing forgiveness of God and yet hold grudges against brothers and sisters in Christ and not talk to them and let them know what's going on. We don't remember and dream of the perfect justice that God is about to bring while we oppress, we bully, we manipulate, and we use other people. We don't do that now. So God calls you to be an agent of new creation, even as you live in the fallenness of the present world. God calls you to live in such a way that His love, His faithfulness, and His justice is manifested through your life, through your spirit-filled, Jesus-soaked life. God, God's hope doesn't just make you feel better. It makes you live better. God's hope changes you from the inside out. Last reason for hope from these verses. 
Verse 9, this is to me the greatest one of all. Verse 9 says, they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Hope comes from an intimate relationship with this Messiah. Like I read that verse, where do you get that from that verse, Pastor? That's a good question. Y'all are right on it today. Thank you for asking that question. Here's how we get it. When he says that in verse 9, the knowledge of the Lord, when he talks about the knowledge of the Lord, we tend to think of knowledge according to a Western way of thinking. You have a lot of students here. Students getting ready to do finals. You can get food and prayer uh, somewhere on Temple's campus uh, from some Epiphany College Connect people. You're going to need that. You're going to want that. But we think of knowledge as something that comes through diligent study. And our idea of knowledge in the Western world is really governed by uh, Greek philosophy, Aristotle, and particularly Plato, who had this concept of otherworldly ideas that we need to try to grasp, but we can never touch. That's how we tend to think of knowledge. But in the Hebrew mind, knowledge consisted of that which you can see, hear, taste, and touch. Knowledge came about by personal, intimate experience with the thing that is known. And so when he says that the knowledge of the Lord will be as common in that day as water is to the ocean, he says it will cover everything and everyone. You're going to know him deeply, not know about him kind of, sort of, but you're going to know him. This is the crying need for the people of God as Isaiah writes these words. From the very beginning of this book, he lays out the issue. And in chapter 1, verse 2, he says it this way. He says, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, it's master's feeding trowel, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The issue with our world right now is that people don't know God. Too often, that's even people in the church who have a distant kind of sort of relationship with God. We know about him, but there's no handling. There is no intimacy but hope comes from an intimate uh, relationship with our Redeemer. Let me conclude. I don't know where your life is at today. Someone may be here today who is truly, truly struggling, hurting and in despair. Someone else may be here and you're just doing great. Perhaps most of us are somewhere in the middle today, but I know one thing. 
you need the hope that comes from God. You don't need to put your trust in false saviors, in secret sins that make you feel better for a minute, or in ugly obsessions that don't allow you to see what the real problem is. God bids you close to him to find him in this time. As we celebrate Advent, we're looking forward to Christmas Day, the day on the calendar when we celebrate in a particular way the birth of our Savior over 2,000 years ago. What a great celebration. But as believers, we not only look backwards to that, but we also look forward to the one who will come again. He will right every wrong. He will bring every high and lofty thing low. He will raise up all of those who are oppressed and struggling. And he will bring his perfect salvation to his people. Hope finds you in your most desolate place. Hope clings to a flawless Messiah. Hope rejoices in redeemed creation. And hope joins itself in intimate relationship with Jesus. So I pray Right now, I'm going to pray for anyone here that you're at a place where you know that you need that hope. If that's you, you could just raise your hand and say, I need some hope right now. I'm struggling with something. Just raise your hand if you want that kind of hope. You know that you're in a place. Perhaps you're doing all right, but you know that you're looking to all these other things other than Christ for your hope. And they make you come to a point where you're doing all right. You're not really feeling the burn and the hurt because you're doing these other things to distract you. But you need this hope. So let me pray. And after I pray, uh, we'll get ready for communion today. But let me pray. Father, I thank you for your people gathered here in this place today. Lord, you know where each one of us is at. You know how desperately we need you, even if we don't know ourselves. So we pray, O oh God, that you will so impress upon your people our need for you, that we will come to you and to you alone. You are the fountain of all hope. It comes from you. Lord, if we're looking anywhere else and finding it somewhere else, Lord, our desire is to put those things aside and look to the only one who can save. Oh, God, be with your people. Watch over us. Keep us. Strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.